From the community room at Umzalit Grand Center, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Thank you. The Middle East is a perennial hotspot framed by tension, violence, and uncertainty. It's a big part of journalist Daniel Estrin's beat, which also includes parts of Europe and Russia. He's NPR's international correspondent based in Jerusalem. He's covered the Middle East and beyond for a decade. Daniel's a native St. Louisan. His parents are still living here, and in fact, they're with our audience today. Welcome to the Estrins. Also, he's home for a visit, as you might imagine. We thank him for spending some of his time home with us. Daniel, welcome. Great to meet you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much. I have to imagine, given what's going on in the part of the world you reside in now, that you're happy for a break, get a chance to get away from it all. It is so good to have a break. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to be back in St. Louis. I haven't been here in a, in a while, maybe more than a year. And I'm really happy to be here. You know, uh, I read in your bio that uh, I guess it was 10 years ago or maybe a little bit more that you stuck a microphone in your back pocket and just headed off in that direction. Was it really that impromptu? You know, when I think about why I became a journalist um, and why it took me so long, um, it took me a long time to really realize that this is what I wanted to do. It was only in my second semester of my senior year in college that I realized that this is something that I that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was I was in I was outside Boston at a university outside Boston at Brandeis, and I thought, what could be a really cool thing to do? Just my last semester, and NPR popped into my mind. And NPR, I, I grew up with NPR in every room. Mm-hmm. From my bedroom, waking up in the morning to go to school, walking down the hallway to the kitchen, it was like surround sound St. Louis public radio, listening to Morning Edition, getting into the car, going to, to, to high school, could keep listening to, to Morning Edition. So that was some, it was the soundtrack of my childhood. And when I, I called the receptionist at, uh, at WBUR, the local Boston affiliate, and I said, hi, I'd like to inquire about an internship and the receptionist said, okay, what show? And I said, um, I hadn't done my homework. She said, the Here and Now show is a good show for, for interns. So the day of my interview was an enormous blizzard. I took the commuter rail in and I showed up and the executive producer came into the waiting room and took one look at me and said, you showed up, you're hired. <laughs> That's the way most of us got the job. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and and it was like I found my tribe. I found my people. I loved the people I was working with. I was put on the task of calling tattoo parlors in Oklahoma City, (laughs) and one person was going through a Bob Marley interview, and we were putting on a show. And when I look back and connect the dots on how I got to, to journalism, it makes a lot of sense. I... In third grade here in St. Louis, I remember Mrs. Yule assigned us to read the newspaper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, every morning. In fifth grade, my, my friend Jordan Newmark, her, her mother Judy Newmark, who works for the Post-Dispatch, sure. came to our class and spoke about what it's like being a journalist, and I remember being fascinated by it. Um, and so I, I wrote for the high school newspaper at Ledoux High School for the Panorama. I think some of my proudest moments my best work was in that newspaper i loved my my stories there i wrote about feng shui in the classroom and the and the what's the great the best energies how does the energy fit in and i wrote about 
the history, uh, I went to, to spend a, a lunch period with the history teachers and, and wrote about that. And um, so I've always loved writing, but it took me until the very end of my college career to say this is something that I actually want to do. It's a small world. My brother went to Brandeis, so I was surprised. Oh, I didn't realize that, uh, that you went there. So why the Middle East? Well, at the very end of that internship at NPR in Boston, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I spoke with one of my colleagues, one of the, the, one of the reporters um, at the station, and she said, well, why don't you do what I did when I graduated and, and buy a microphone and buy a plane ticket? She went to Kenya, and I had studied Hebrew for many years. I was always fascinated with the place. I, I begun studying Arabic in college, and I thought, how many places in the world can you use Hebrew and Arabic and, and do journalism? Mm -hmm. And I, I landed in Jerusalem, and I remember my first radio story was from Marketplace, the business program. And it was about what's called the Shemitah. It's a biblical tradition. Every seven years, farmers are to uh, not work their soil and, and let their lands rest. And I did a story for Marketplace about how does a modern economy deal with this biblical tradition. And in Israel, this is a tradition that is that's that's kept in all kinds of interesting ways involving a lot of loopholes so that's what i reported on and, and since that first story on the radio i i have found that theme running through so many of the stories that i've been attracted to that um devotion and, and interest in ancient tradition and identity and how does a person in 2018 uh, grapple with all those questions. It's very clear in your reportage, and I wanted to get to this because I think many people think that there's only one story in the Middle East, and that's the story of violence and tension. But very clearly, uh, you went there to do other stories, to find other stories, and to find people, and you've been very successful at that. Thank you, and people really is the name of the game. It's I'm always thinking about how can I tell a story about a person? How can I introduce the listener? To one person, and how can I, how can I help the listener walk a mile on that person's shoes? And I think that is the power of journalism. What did you find there then and since that maybe has surprised you with regard to the people? Did you go there? Do you think with any uh, previous conceptions about what you were going to find, and then have that change over time? I think I was completely naive when I went. I had no idea what I was getting involved in. What uh, when I woke up and realized that I had no plan and I was freelancing as a journalist and um, selling story to story and uh, it was the right move. But I think what surprised me, I think every day surprises me there. I, I'm you meet so many different voices and so many different perspectives every single day when you go out in the field and talk with people. And oftentimes you'll hear the Israelis think this, the Palestinians think that, but actually there are so many different perspectives among Palestinians. There are so many different perspectives among Israelis, and, uh, and that's the kind of texture that I like to bring out in my reporting, is find those nuances um, and, and bring them to life. Uh, your own uh, uh, performance aside, how well do you think media does in general in telling the story of that part of the world? It's a good question. I, I think I think my colleagues do an outstanding job, and I think that what a lot of people don't realize what the work is, what it takes to get something on the air. Um, 
I remember my parents were telling me that that one of that someone told them, "I heard your son on the air, and and what does he do the rest of the day?" <laughs> and that's not to make light of it, but I think honestly, people, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize what what the day to day is um, in putting t put putting the story on the air. It's waking up in the morning, reading all of the news that's been written, uh, reading your colleagues' reports, and when you come across news to make sure that you're verifying every single fact um, that that you you know I'm not going to put something on the air that I've read in the paper I'm call I'm calling the officials I'm making sure that it's right and I think that all of my colleagues do that um, we're in the field spending hours oftentimes in the hot sun collecting information collecting uh, perspectives from people when I was in Gaza recently, I went to uh, I went to a hospital and I went up the stairs to the administration and I asked to speak with the, the head of the emergency room, and we sat and I convinced him. I, I asked him, I'd like to see the the, the logs of your uh, the patients and the various wounds that you've been dealing with. That this is the very very day to day kind of hard work of of putting together a story, and I think that it's important for people to realize all that goes into that. We, we can listen to part of the story and the way you told it now, I think. It, it's very illustrative, I think, of what, uh, what life is like there right now. Dr. Mohammed El-Adaini was overseeing the urgent cases at Al-Aqsa Hospital in Gaza. Scores of people were being brought in, people shot in the head and neck, massive hemorrhaging. Around 2 p.m., two men were wheeled in with gunshot wounds to the abdomen. The doctor tried doing CPR on one of them, but he died. Then the doctor looked at the other one. It was his brother, Ahmad. He couldn't believe it. He rushed him into the operating room, but he knew it was too late. I know that we cannot do anything for him. Were you the doctor to announce his death? Yes, yes. How, how heartbreaking is that? That was, um, that was a story that, that we came across almost by happenstance. Uh, NPR's producer in Gaza had interviewed a couple years ago the man uh, who was at the border and who, who was killed and had some of the tape of that interview. And we were trying to think, uh, let's go through that tape and, and bring that man's story to the air. And, and about a day later, we found out that actually um, the most interesting part of that story that we wanted to focus on was mm -hmm. that this man's brother was a doctor who was working in the hospital, just as you heard, and his and suddenly his brother was wheeled in and he was trying to save his brother's life. That, it, it was a gripping story and it's, un, it's uncomfortable to listen to. And I think for many people um, and for audiences listening to this story, it's, it's, a, it's a charged subject on. People have you know, very strong opinions about what's going on. And I think for many people, it can be very hard to sit and to listen to the grief of, of someone who they may not be on a side that they may not agree on. Mm -hmm. um, on. But I think that is, that's the power of, of NPR, of radio and of journalism, of sitting and breathing in and listening to somebody's grief and to someone's story. You talk about having to go out into the field, which obviously you did for a story like this. But the field can be a very dangerous place, and anything can happen at any time, as, as I see it. How do you deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis? You minimize the risks. And NPR is very, very concerned about um, journalist safety. 
uh, we have discussions. I have discussions with my editors every time mm-hmm. before I go out into the field to do something that would be even remotely uh, risky. And uh, and then you're very, very transparent about that on the air. When I was reporting in Gaza along the border during these re- recent weeks of violence, I would say on the air, I am not near the border fence where the violence is happening. It's too dangerous. So I can't see a lot of what is happening. Here's what I can see, and here's what I've been hearing from from other people, but I think um, safety is absolutely number one concern. We're talking with Daniel Estrin. He is NPR's international correspondent. He's with us in studio here. Well, not in studio. It's at the community room at Grand Center. Uh, His parents are here along with a number of other lovely people. We have to take our break. We'll do that now and come back momentarily with more from Daniel. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Back now with Daniel Estrin, the international correspondent for NPR, uh, on home leave from his duties in the Middle East. He's stationed in Jerusalem. Dan, you've been there for, uh, for 10 years now. Over that time, what do you see as better now than when you got there and worse now? Wow, that's a tough question. The food keeps getting better and better. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> the food is tremendous. And with that, the, the passions of people um, for their food, for their culture, uh, for their history, it's... it's it's really a joy with every single year that I'm there to, to, to find out more, um, to, to find more layers of nuance and, and to share in some of those joys with people. Um, I think at the same time, Israelis and Palestinians are becoming more and more isolated from each other. And that might, may not surprise you, but mm-hmm. it's important to point out that for generations, um, Israelis and Palestinians worked with each other, uh, had contacts with each other, visited each other's homes, and for for many different reasons, for various for periods of violence and and other reasons that people have been separated to the point that today, for instance, in Gaza, um, no one can enter Gaza save for few people. I, as an American journalist, have the privilege of being able to go there and report. Israeli journalists are not allowed to go to Gaza. American tourists are not allowed to go to Gaza. It's, a, it's, it's an isolated place. People in the West Bank um, have a very hard time getting into Israel. Israelis are not allowed to go to, the, to Palestinian areas in the West Bank. And it's, it's really, it's a privilege for me to be able to go into all these worlds and meet all these people and bring their stories, no matter if they're Israeli or Palestinian. Um, and I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that the, the interactions between these two people are getting fewer and fewer. Why is it getting worse? Um, should we start with Abraham? I don't know how far back to go. But there was, a, there was a period of violence that started in the early 2000s, the Palestinian uprising, suicide bombings, and, and many different attacks, and Israeli military incursions into the West Bank. And um, I think from there, things began to deteriorate in terms of the interactions between people. Today, um, if you are a Palestinian who lives in Ramallah, 
you can't get to Jerusalem unless you have a special permit from the from the military. Um, if you're an Israeli who used to have a friend who lives in the West Bank and in, in the city of Ramallah, you can't go there um, because there are big signs, uh, Israeli signs warning you that it's dangerous to your lives. And there have been people who have been killed um, on both sides. And, and it's there are absolutely um, frightening security concerns. And uh, and it's unfortunately the, the, the outcome has been uh, isolation. Shall we point fingers? I mean, is this a problem... Uh, generated by the Israeli government, by the Palestinians. Uh, can you and would you offer opinion on that? I find my role as a journalist is not to necessarily point one finger at one place because there are so many fingers that you can point at so many places. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my role is to... I, I'm lucky I get to ask a lot of questions and not have as many answers. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that's, that's what I try to bring in my reporting is, is bring stories about the average people who are living in these situations and try to understand what are the reasons. Um, try to get the various perspectives. Of course, the, an- the short answer is that, that uh, many different people have a, have a role in this. Does the movement of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, uh, will this tend to exacerbate the situation in any way, do you think? Well, we've already seen um, that the, a, a very strong uh, response we've seen since December when President Trump announced that he was recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moving the U.S. embassy there. Uh, on the one hand, we didn't see the kind of enormous violence that many pundits had been predicting. Um, we did see a lot of protests, but I think the the more long-term effect has been political. We've seen the Palestinian Authority completely boycott the U.S. Until today, the Palestinian leadership is boycotting the Trump administration. Um, and we have seen a protest along the Gaza border, which have been, there have been many, many different factors for those protests. It's not but, but one of the reasons that people are um, infuriated is this decision. I think when you speak to Israelis about uh, the U.S. embassy move, I, the, the morning that it was announced that, that Trump was recognizing Jerusalem and, and was going to move the embassy, I walked around an mar- open-air market and spoke with Israelis about what they think. And, and a lot of them said they're kind of uh, surprised, like, doesn't the U.S. already recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital? They had, they had taken it as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a fact of geography, just as Paris is the capital of France. And this, was, this issue was never on the number one issue on the top of, of Israelis' agenda. I think, by and large, Israelis are, are very happy um, that, the, that the embassy is in Jerusalem, and they think that that should have been the case many, many years ago. But we... We're, we're, we are now seeing w- what is going to happen. The Trump administration wants to advance its peace plan for the Israelis and the Palestinians, and yet ever since the uh, ever since Trump announced his that he was moving the embassy there, the Palestinians have boycotted the Trump administration, mm-hmm. and it's going to be very hard to present a peace plan when you have one side of that plan not talking with the U.S. Have you run into Jared Kushner along the way? Speaking of the peace plan. <laughs> I haven't met him. I have met um, some other senior White House officials. 
Um, I was meeting at the White House on Friday with one senior administration official. He said that he uh, that the peace team, the, the Trump's peace team, will be presenting its peace plan in the coming months. Now, they've been saying this for many months, mm -hmm. but um, one gets the sense that, as this administration official told me, that this is a very detailed plan. It's not a two-page term sheet with very basic guidelines for, for what a peace would look like, what a peace deal would look like, but this is a very, very detailed plan. And now the question is when they're going to present it, but uh, they, the Trump administration says they, in, they do intend to present it. Overall, what's your impression of uh, the Israeli response to overall and general to Donald Trump? When Trump was elected, I attended a victory party put on by some of his supporters who had uh, rallied the vote for him among American Israelis in Israel and in West Bank Jewish settlements. There was a, a leader of one of the settlements there. And I remember one of the activists there saying, now that Donald Trump is, is president, he needs to step aside and let Israel essentially do its thing and do what it, it feels is, uh, it needs to do. It's, it's a absolutely uh, 180 degree difference from, from Obama's presidency. Um, I think if you take a survey of countries around the world that you'd find support for Trump uh, much higher in Israel than in many other countries, that said, there are many, many different perspectives in Israel and many people who, who don't support him. Does anyone really think that Donald Trump is going to step aside from anything? <laughs> I, I wonder about that. What about the relationship between uh, Bibi Netanyahu and the president? It's been fascinating to watch. I traveled with Prime Minister Netanyahu to, to the Oval Office in March, and it was a critical moment for both of those leaders. They were both facing legal troubles. Netanyahu is facing corruption allegations. And this was a moment um, for, for Netanyahu to solidify his already strong relationship with Trump. Um, they take pages out of each other's playbook. Uh, they both harshly criticize the media, my colleagues and I. Um, and it's, you know, on that trip in March, I remember Netanyahu saying that this is, this is a critical moment for Israel's security, and you'll see why. And sure enough, um, many, a couple months later, Donald Trump withdrew from the Iranian nuclear deal, which, is, which was Netanyahu's number one uh, mm -hmm. priority, and moved the embassy to Jerusalem. And now uh, it will be interesting to see if Trump does present his peace plan, uh, how Netanyahu will react, and if there will be things that Trump will be asking him to compromise on. Yeah. I, I want to invite uh, members of the audience to ask questions as well. We've reached that point, so get them ready if you would and come on up to the microphone. But uh, I'll ask a question as we wait for that. And that is, I'm not sure that everybody fully understands what, uh, although they certainly should, what Israel's preoccupation with and concern uh, uh, over Iran is all about. Well, Israel sees Iran as, as the number one uh, malignant force uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and it's seeing most immediately Iran amassing military forces in, on the Syrian side of the, of the Golan Heights, very close to Israel's border. There was even an exchange, uh, a military exchange between Israel and Iran recently, uh, just a few m months ago. 
the first of its kind. And Israel is concerned that Iran is building a, a its military forces very close to its border uh, to to be able to attack. Uh, Israel also sees Iran as as directing Hezbollah, the militant group in Lebanon, as also supporting Hamas uh, in Gaza. And this, I think, we will continue to see that uh, that Trump and Netanyahu will see eye to eye in terms of focusing on Iran. How stable is Netanyahu in terms, and I'm talking about in, in his position politically? It's a good question, Netanyahu. It's, it's incredible because he is facing corruption allegations. The yeah. police in Israel have recommended that he be indicted for bribery, for fraud, for breach of trust. And yet his, his standing in Israel is only, his, his political approval rating is only growing. Um, a lot of Israelis, when you talk to them, will say, well, we don't like the guy. He's been around a long time. He's, he's, will very soon be the longest serving prime minister in Israel, yeah. and yet we don't see an alternative. Well, what is the approval rating, just out of curiosity? Do you know? It changes every day, Don. Yeah. But it's, is it below it's very 50%? Well, some th his, his Likud party is sometimes polling at double-digit numbers in terms of if elections were to be held today, they would gain the most seats, and so therefore Netanyahu would be prime minister. Yeah. Okay, let's go to those questions now. Arthur Hertz is going to join us with his question. Arthur, go ahead. Uh, hi. Um, you had mentioned uh, at some point that you thought the role of the um, reporter was to talk to the man on the street and, and get to know them and see things from their perspective. And I, it's obvious you do a really good job with that. Um, but there's also criticism of the, of the reporting on Israel from NPR. And one of the criticisms is that the Palestinians are, are suffering, and they're suffering t t terribly. But the implication is that this suffering is d due to Israel, if not entirely, m mostly. And uh, the Israeli point of view on, this, on the causes of the suffering is not, uh, is, is not presented very clearly. So you really don't see the other side. You, 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 you get the side from the people suffering and what they say, but that, not the Israeli point of view. Is there any effort that you or NPR is, is making to try and understand the reasons why your, your um, reports on Israel, not, not just you, but the whole NPR, why the reports on Israel are received cr critically um, and if so, do you know, what, what, is, what is your explanation of that, and are you trying to do more to find out about that? It's an important question, and uh, not just NPR, but a lot of my colleagues in the international press um, get this question often about um, criticism of our coverage and, and, in, and questions of, of bias and whether one side or another is getting a fair shake. Um, I'll share with you that in, since in the past couple of weeks, NPR has received about 200 uh, emails from listeners about our Israeli-Palestinian coverage. Um, 157 of them mentioned bias towards a particular side, and it went basically equally. Um, 84 listeners thought NPR's coverage was too pro-Palestinian, and 73 listeners thought NPR's coverage was too pro-Israeli. And I think that um, you, you find that often, and, and I think that oftentimes um, 
people, when they listen to our coverage, are coming, and understandably so, with their, their own perspective of this very charged story, um, specifically addressing uh, how NPR covers Palestinian uh, suffering and, and whether Israel's story is, is told. I, I'd, I'd want you to, to judge our coverage by the breadth of our work um, not by, you know, maybe one particular story. Oftentimes people will write in and say, I heard one story and I'm, and why don't you cover this or that? And, and in the span of a three and a half minute story, it's very hard to include all perspectives, but we, we do our, our best. And I think it's, it's important to judge our coverage, um, w looking at, looking at the, the breadth of our work. I will say that in our coverage of what's been going on in Gaza, um, we have been on on our air on NPR, um, airing a lot of very interesting and, and varied perspectives from Palestinians themselves, criticizing their own leadership, criticizing Hamas and Gaza for encouraging these protests. Um, we've heard directly from the voices of, of people from the Israeli army talking about Hamas's role, and so I, I, I it's an important point um, to make sure that that all perspectives are included, including Israel's, including Palestinians. And, uh, and I think we do a really good job of doing that. And, um, and I hope you'll continue to listen and, and you'll continue to write in when you don't think that way. Uh, it's a collaborative process with a lot of editors and a lot of thought in, put into every single word that goes on the air. Uh, but I think you'll notice uh, a lot of nuance in, in the reporting from from uh, the Israeli-Palestinian beat. Must be judged over time. There's no question about it. Let's take another question. It's Elza Ibrusheva, I believe. I hope I'm close on that. Go ahead, please. Very good. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, in light of the recent tragic death of Anthony Bourdain, there's been a huge outpouring of um, sentiments and opinions of people from the Middle East who felt that his storytelling was unique in making the struggles of everyday people in the, in the Middle East relatable and human. Uh, and I wanted to know, in your opinion, and considering that he never called himself a journalist, how can journalists um, do more to change the perceptions of the life of people in the Middle East, the, the politics, the everyday struggles, um, learning from, from this output of tributes and uh, recognition of Bourdain's contributions? I think that's the power of radio is simply to tell stories about people. And oftentimes I'm presented with, should I tell a story about an idea or an analysis or it, it, and I, and I'm always trying to keep my mind on who is the person, who's the character that I can bring to, to air, to, to hear, to walk a mile in their shoes and to see things through their eyes. Um, and I think that is something that is, that's critical for us in our time. What do uh, the Israeli people watch on television? What are the popular kinds of shows? Great question. Uh, they have Netflix. They watch what <laughs> you watch. But there's, there's, it's, it's also a golden age of television in Israel. Um, there are shows that you'll see on Netflix. Fauda is a, is a very popular show. It's a kind of a um, following a, a special forces unit. Um, going through the West Bank and and uh, it's very high powered, very interesting. Looking at uh, looking at the heroes and the villains and and 
blurring the lines between them. Um, there are tons of cooking shows. Israelis are obsessed with food. Mm-hmm. I think if an alien from Mars came to Israel and turned on the TV, he would be baffled by how much, how, how much on the television is food. Um, <laughs> and I the food really is good there. And there's so many different traditions. You know, you have so many different uh, people from Ethiopia to Yemen to Morocco to Eastern Europe who, are, who live in Israel bring their traditions, and, and the, the mix is tremendous. Uh, you've been caught up in this as well, obviously. You said one of the better things that's happened is the food is getting better. Right. <laughs> it is. We have to take another break. We'll do that and come back and take more questions for Daniel Esterin, who is the NPR's chief international correspondent. He's based in Jerusalem. He's on home leave, and he's with us. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KW. From the community room at Umzalik Grand Center, we are back with uh, Daniel Estrin, the international correspondent for NPR stationed in Jerusalem. We have a live audience here, and we're going to go to a questioner that has a background uh, with Mr. Estrin. Will you go ahead? It's Edie Tashma? Yes, it is. Go ahead, Edie. My art history teacher. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) From high school. Hey, Daniel. (laughs) I have a very simple question. How do you stay calm? I don't. <laughs> um, every day is different in this job. It's not a nine to five. I wake up, I read the newspaper, I have to um, write a daily advisory to to NPR editors and mucky mucks and correspondents about what's happening in, in my patch and write about what I'm thinking about that day and what I'm going to do. Um, and then my plans, and then I throw the plans in the trash because something happens and something breaks and I have to get it on the air. And um, it's, it's hard to stay calm. It's hard to stay calm, but um, I'm working on it. <laughs> Thank you. Before we went on the air, you were talking to the group here and showing some photographs. And among the photographs you showed were uh, of children causing me to wonder about the children in that part of the world and how they're growing up and and what their futures are likely to be on both sides of this uh, of this dilemma children i think suffer the most um first of all not only from from violence from obvious violence but from the traumas that their parents are facing uh, from the stories that they hear at home, from from this this reality that their parents didn't live, uh, children are more isolated from each other. And when, I'm not just actually talking about Israelis and Palestinians, but I'm talking about Israelis and Israelis, Palestinians and Palestinians. There are so many divisions within these societies that. It's it's really it's really disheartening to see children who simply are ignorant of, of people who aren't like them. Um, talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if a generation ago a Palestinian in Gaza worked in Israel and and had Israeli friends, that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Um, 
and and children are growing up without ever having been in each other's places. And I think that's one of the saddest things. No opportunity, obviously, for the kids of either side to get together in any way in sport or there education. There are. Yeah, Don, there are. I mean, and it's rare, but these things happen, and it's important to point out. Yeah. There are activities and there are groups that bring together all kinds of people. And I'm not, like I said, not just Israelis and Palestinians, but Israeli secular children and Israeli religious children or Palestinians from refugee camps and Palestinians from from more well-to-do homes. Um, there are there are a lot of well-intentioned people out there trying to bring people together, but there are also a lot of forces um, trying to keep them apart. We have another question from the audience, and I hope I get the name right. Sviranovsky? Is it Greg Sviranovsky? That's actually perfect. Is it really? Yeah. I don't hear that very often, believe me. <laughs> so uh, I'm 17 years old and just kind of finding my footing in the world of journalism, but one of my favorite things to do as a pastime is visit different newsrooms. So I've seen the Post-Dispatch and the Des Moines Register, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I was on a tour of the Post-Dispatch about a year ago uh, for like an ONA conference, and we saw they took us to like their sports desk. It had been made of like $600 worth of like old broken wood shelves, glass panels, things of that nature, so completely makeshift. And so I guess my question is, how much of the news world in general is makeshift, in the, insofar as it's all new and coming together from old parts and stories? This guy's already a journalist. Greg is, he's telling a story. He's painting a picture. I can imagine that sports desk. So. And it's a radio journalist, too. That voice has got a future in radio. Yes, I agree. I totally agree. Thanks. He's going to Northwestern J School, journalism school. We were talking earlier. I'm, I'm really excited for you, Greg. Good for him. Thanks. I think um, a lot of this, this career is is yes it's making it up as you go along and there are there is so much turmoil now with newspapers folding and and um medium media changing so much and it's it can be disheartening but um i also think it's this we're living in a golden age of journalism where there are more outlets to listen to stories if it's podcasts or read stories um and and my advice would be to learn as much as you can in many different media but also not to be disheartened because there, I firmly believe there will always be a thirst for, for stories and NPR will always be around. So think about us too. Our next uh, questioner is Ellen Futterman. Ellen, good to see you. Go ahead. Good to see you. I was wondering, Daniel, how does being Jewish inform your reporting and do you need to take special measures to ensure your safety? It informs my reporting a tremendous amount. I mean, I think every journalist comes to a story with uh, their own background, their own upbringing, uh, how they've how they've experienced the world, and you know, I would be it would uh, it would be wrong to say that that none of that is affects the way that I see the world. Um, I think it only enriches it, and I of course. Um, Fortunately, it's it's not been an issue in terms of safety. Um, you're you learn how to be discreet when you need to be discreet. But um, I think universally, wherever I am, I am I am perceived, and I am an American journalist from NPR telling a story to a, a very diverse group of people. And I'm always thinking about that. I know that 
there are all kinds of people listening to my stories and, and interested in wanting to know. So I, I think that, that my, that my familiarity with, with that story growing up and knowing about Jewish traditions, also learning about uh, Palestinian and Muslim and Christian traditions, it, it's having that resonance um, is only helpful. You're only home for a short time. Uh, when you go back, is there anything you'll be bringing with you that you've learned here that will inform perhaps your reporting back there? That I've learned here in St. Louis? Yeah. Yeah, to take a break. <laughs> Enjoy time at home. And yes, every time I come home, um, I see, I get a chance to kind of turn off my mind, switch off my brain, but also to, to, to experience things um, as a tourist. And even though St. Louis is my home and will always be my home, a few years ago I came back here and, and during all of the um, the tension surrounding Ferguson, uh, I went to visit Ferguson. I, I hadn't been there. And, and, and I loved experiencing St. Louis again as a, as a place to, to explore and to, as, a, as a native, but also through journalist eyes. Um, but I'm really happy to be home. I'm going to the Muni tomorrow night. I grew up acting in the Muni. Um, I, I'm going to go to the Arch. Uh, I'm going to enjoy myself. When you came back from Ferguson, were people there asking you about what was going on in your hometown? Um, you mean what's going on in What was in going Jerusalem? on in Ferguson? It was an international dateline for a period of time. It was, yeah. yeah. And um, it, it was really surreal to, to come back home on vacation and then mm -hmm. see Ferguson to be in the, in the news. And uh, I, I was really happy to go there and visit and... And I, and I encourage everyone listening um, to treat yourself as a journalist in your own community. And don't be afraid to get in the car and drive 15 minutes um, to a place you haven't been before and talk with people and, and hear their stories for themselves. It's a great way to, to be a tourist, is to think like a journalist. Let's take another question. Michael Honigford joins us. Michael? So, Daniel, um, given the very you know, deep-seated historical grievances on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian problem. Do you see any real hope for a solution there? And, and if so, what, what do you think that, that solution might look like? Should I give you the good news or the bad news? <laughs> I, I guess both. Um, I don't know. I'm always surprised every day um, just when I think that that there's no hope uh, for for a political breakthrough. There, something happens and something opens up. It's a it's a really dynamic place, and I think it's impossible to write it off as um, that's, there is no solution. Um, and I think the people, ultimately, the people who live there, don't want to believe that either. Um, so, it. I hope I know that doesn't answer your question. But um, I'm I'm always I'm always amazed every day meeting people. There are interesting, creative, dynamic people who, in the end, on both sides, just want to live their lives and are are sick of conflict. And I think that's something to, to hold on to. So, if, if you were going to design a uh, a, a, you know, a peace treaty, whatever, what what would you have it look like? 
Luckily, I'm not a politician. I'm a journalist. <laughs> so I can describe to you what has been the, the proposed solution for many, many years um, that the U.S. backed, which was a two-state solution where Israel would retreat from most of the West Bank and a Palestinian state would be formed in the West Bank. That's a solution that, um, that was backed by Republican and Democratic administrations for many years. The Trump administration has not endorsed that, uh, that view, and neither has Netanyahu's government. Um, when I was with Netanyahu in, in Washington in March, I asked, uh, well, a number of our colleagues were sitting around the table with him, and he was asked, what is his position on the two-state solution? And he said, uh, I, or, or what, what does he think is the solution? And he said, I haven't named it, but I've described it. And he described a solution in which Israel would not continue to govern the Palestinians, but that Israel would have overriding security control of the entire territory. And that's something that he said, and in Israel's perspective, you can't, you can't have it any other way. And he says, in the past, when Israel has left territory, like when Israel left Gaza, Hamas, the militant group, took over, and there's been only violence. And yet, that is a position that I think uh, the Palestinians would w would not accept to have any Israeli security control in the West Bank. So here we are, I suppose, back to square one. Um, and we're living in a really interesting time where the old paradigms and and these the the two state solution that everyone seemed to be holding on to is now in question. You would think that the average man and woman on the street in Israel would just be sick of it and be demanding that some, something happen rather than just continue year after year like this. Is there any sentiment like that that you can pick up on? Of course people are sick of conflict. No one, yeah. uh, you know, average people don't want their children going up this way. And yet it is people are, are passionate about their history. Israelis will say, we will never have peace until the Palestinians accept our presence here, mm -hmm. um, truly accept that we belong in the Middle East. Uh, many Palestinians I've met, you get mixed views. Um, some of them see Israel as, as a fact um, that, is, that can't be dismissed. And, and many people also have different opinions and say, Israel came here and, and kicked us out or drove us out or caused us to flee and that these are our lands and that um, that Israel doesn't have a right to be here. You hear all these perspectives. Right. Let's take another question. Alyssa Duell joins us. Alyssa? Uh, well, actually, a good follow-up to Don's question is it seems like a lot of people become immune to certain things, um, but then on the flip side, there's kind of a youth movement taking things back like a parkland for gun control or uh, immigration in certain states. Um, and I was wondering, do you find any kind of uh, groundswell from either the youth or from other areas that are trying to, to take on this issue where maybe politicians and outside interests cannot? You do find a lot of energetic, creative people of all ages um, trying to grapple with this question. I, I went to an event a number of months ago that I like to think of as speed dating for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it was 
it, there were journalists and diplomats in the room and about eight different groups came and presented their 10 minute uh, speed dating version of what they had to offer for, for solving the conflict. And there were so many different mm -hmm. uh, creative solutions and some involved uh, one homeland, what they called uh, having, having open borders, but two different peoples, uh, all kinds of, of, of solutions now and, and proposals. On the other hand, you, there's a trend, I think, on both sides to, well, let me put it this way. On the Israeli side, um, it's very easy for a lot of people to forget that actually there is a, an ongoing conflict. There's the security situation has actually been quite stable in recent years. And your average Israeli can, can live very comfortably um, and, and be lulled into a false sense of security, um, which is repeatedly interrupted. Um, on the Palestinian side, there's a growing movement of people against what's called normalization, normalizing ties with Israel, meaning any kind of interaction. If I'm an artist and, and I want to do a joint exhibition with an Israeli artist, there's a growing movement um, among Palestinians saying, no, we don't want to have uh, an appearance of normal relations with Israel while there is a conflict going on. So there are, are, there are a lot of opposing Currents. We're going to have to leave it there. I'm afraid our time is up, Daniel Estrin. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for it. How, how much time do you have left at home before you go back? I'm here for a couple more days until the end of the week. So I'm really happy to be here. And thank you so much for having me. It, it's been terrific. Go back and enjoy some of that good Israeli cooking. Thank you. <laughs> Daniel Estrin, thank you. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh. <laughs>